Chances are that you remember the best and the worst things that anyone has ever said to you. Today, we get to focus on the best thing that a Christian can say to a fellow Christian, especially in their own church. When a fellow Christian basically says, wow, you are really a believer in Jesus. Wow, you're the real deal. You're really saved. You've really been chosen by God. And it shows in your life. That's how I know. Today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 through 10, we see evidence of election. How you know if you're chosen by God to be saved and what indicators identify you. If you ask the average person, Hey, what's the evidence of a Christian? You're going to get a mixed bag response. Some will say, well, it's because I go to church, I'm a Christian, or it's because my family is Christian. They'll say it that way. Uh, they'll say, oh, I give to the church, or I, I like to sing worship songs, or I pray, or I read my Bible. What I found over the years is that those who think that their Christianity depends on them Gets, they get disillusioned, and they get frustrated because they think it all hinges on them. And it's easy for them to throw in the towel. It's easy to say, well, the Christian life doesn't work. The church doesn't work. I think I'm going to quit. And what I want you to see today is that the chosen by God are changed by God. That all whom God chooses to save are changed by God. They, they become progressively more and more like Christ. And others know that they're saved because there's proof, there's evidence, there's fruit. There's indicators. First Thessalonians shows how the beloved of God become beloved to one another in light of the return of Christ. Last Sunday we saw that a beloved church is changed by the gospel and connected in relationships and committed to serving Christ, to ministry. Paul was writing to encourage a young church. And he had received some progress reports. So he had received, you know, uh, the report card, and it wasn't like, oh, we got we to hide that from Paul. Uh, we're not doing so well. It was really good. The report was really good about the church. They're doing well, thumbs up, you know, kudos to them. And so the great thing is he's writing to encourage them because of all the good things he heard about them and the things he knew about them and the things he had observed in their life. So we're looking today at evidence of election, but before we get to the evidence, we have to talk about election, okay? Now, evidence of election is there because first there is election. What is election? Well, let's look at verse 4, and it comes from a Greek word, eklektos, which is translated chosen. So here's how verse 4 starts. We know, there's a confidence here, they know something, they know something about the church. It says, brothers loved by God. And we see uh, that Greek word for brothers, adolfoi, it's, it's brothers and sisters. It's brethren. Church, we know that you are loved by God and that he has chosen you. We know he has chosen you. And that word chosen is eklektos. It means to choose. It means to select for yourself, to choose and pick out for oneself. Elect. 
Now, there's all kinds of choosing, I know, in the world. You know, there's, we, we have elections. We choose people. Uh, there's a military draft. There, there could be draft day in terms of sports. And in those settings, humanly speaking, where you're chosen, it could be by chance or by skill or because people like the way your name sounds. But God doesn't choose that way. This is not the way God chooses. The way God chooses is you provide no benefit and he chooses solely by his good pleasure. But not about anything good about you that made him choose you. Like if I'm picking sides for a team, I'm going to look for the person I think is going to you know, score the most touchdowns or catch the most passes or hit the most home runs, whatever kind of team I'm choosing. But in what is called sovereign election, it goes like this. This is a definition, a quick definition. Before creation... Because of his sovereign good pleasure, God chooses some to be saved before creation. All by his sovereign good pleasure, God chooses some to be saved. It is God's eternal purpose to save some by his grace. Now, there is no other biblical doctrine that, that makes human heart and the pride of the human heart rise up in defense of against it, to be very defensive and say, I don't like the way that sounds. I want to be able to call the shots. What you find as you read your Bible is you don't call the shots in terms of salvation. God does. Sovereign election. Before the creation of the world, God, because of his sovereign good pleasure, chose some to be saved. God's eternal purpose to save some by his grace. It's the first link in that beautiful golden chain of salvation, redemption. Theologian Louis Burkhoff wrote this about election. It's the eternal act of God whereby he, in his sovereign good pleasure and on account of no foreseen merit in them, chooses some to be the recipients of eternal salvation. This is what the Bible teaches, and this is what Paul is so excited about, and this is what you and I should be very excited about if we're in Christ. We were chosen. Because if God had not chosen anyone to be saved, no one would be saved. Try that on for size. If God had not chosen some to be saved, no one would be saved. We are called, in the Bible, believers are called, Christians are called, God's chosen ones. The chosen, the, the elect those are the words that the Bible uses. And in Ephesians 1.4, it says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before the world began. Second Thessalonians starts very similar to 1 Thessalonians, and they say this, we, we thank God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Sounds familiar, right? Because God chose you to be saved. Very clear. God chose you to be saved. Jesus said in John chapter 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me, chosen by the Father, and, and they will come to him. They will believe in him. They will be saved by him. Peter says it this way, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He selected you. He chose you for his very own. We go over to Romans chapter 8, a very well-known passage of Scripture. 
And in Romans 8, what you'll see are some things being said about believers in Jesus, about Christians. Now, this is not being said about everyone in the world, okay? This is not about, oh, this applies to everyone, and they just have to figure it out. That's not how this works. Romans 8, and we'll pick it up at verse 28, if you have your Bibles open. It says this, we know, there's a confidence here, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So people who are loving God, following Jesus, believing the gospel, for those who are called according to his purpose. He had a plan, he had a purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, if you say, well, yeah, he knew what I would choose, therefore he chose me, you just made yourself the determiner of your salvation. And the Bible doesn't allow you that room. Those whom he foreknew, that means he knew them beforehand. He predestined, which means he chose them beforehand. Made them, knew them, predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called, called by the gospel. We heard the gospel message of Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. Jesus dying for our sins in our place at the cross. Called, and those whom he called, he also justified, made them right with him. You have a right relationship with God now. You're forgiven. You're uh, declared righteous because of Christ, not because of anything you have done good, even though Paul is saying, you guys have done a lot of good things because of God's work in your life and because now you want to please God. Romans 11 says there's a remnant that's chosen by grace at the present time, and it's no longer on the basis of works. There's no works involved. Israel failed to obtain it. The elect obtained it. The rest were hardened. Paul told Timothy, look, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began, before the, the world was created. God made a choice. And if you're a believer today, or maybe if you, come, if you become a believer in Jesus today, then you say, wow, God chose me. Now the good thing about that is that if, if you had to do all the deciding, you'd be running as far away from God. I mean, look here, right? Come to Jesus and suffer. Can I sell you on that? Come to Jesus and, and, and uh, let go of your pride. Come to Jesus and forgive all the people you're holding things against. You, you see where we're going here. Only God could come up with this kind of plan. If you look over at 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, there's some other interesting things that God says about those whom he has chosen. It's, it'll be very enlightening, by the way. Just go there. If you, if you have a Bible with you, go there. 1 Corinthians 1, and pick it up with me at verse 26. For consider your calling brothers, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. You, know, you weren't the smartest, you know, uh, one in the bunch. You weren't the sharpest knife in, on the block. And not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. A bunch of weaklings. And not many were of noble birth. It's just, this is not the way God's doing it. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being may boast in the presence of God. There's no boasting 
We can't say we did this. And then verse 30, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification. So it's written, but the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Wow, God is so good. He saved me. Wow, God. And, and you know how you only know that if you're saved, if you believe in Jesus. If, if you're dead as a doornail, spiritually speaking, I'm glad you're here and I'm glad you're listening. But you need to believe in Jesus and, and then be saved. And once you get saved, you're like, wow. I was running from God as far as hard as I could in, in, the, in the opposite direction. And God stopped me in my tracks, arrested me with the truth. I get it now. I, I will lay down my pride and I will, I, will, I will trust Christ now. In fact, Peter said this, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. If you practice these qualities, you will never fail. And there was a list of good things that Christians should be engaged in. So first there's, a, there's election, right? And, and there's two primary evidences of being the elect, being chosen by God. So again, chosen by God. We know, beloved, you have been chosen by God. God has chosen you. That's elect. It's the Greek word eklektos, the chosen and elect. Two primary evidences of being chosen by God. Number one, here's the first one. You experienced new birth. I put that in the past tense, but you experienced a new birth. You don't get, keep getting born over and over again. God gives you spiritual life. It's called regeneration. The Bible word is regeneration. He takes the dead, makes it alive. So here's, if you want a definition of regeneration, it's this. God does something all on his own, secretly, sovereignly, because he's the king of all. He's the creator of all. And he imparts spiritual life to those who are then called by the gospel. And then what happened is that you then heard the gospel and came to faith in Christ. And, and you experience a new birth. And, and verse 5 explains it. In verse 5, he's saying, look, we didn't figure this out. We didn't bring it to you. We didn't make you believe. We didn't come up with this plan. It says, our gospel came. And this is a very significant word pointing to the, the result that is reached through the working of an outside force. God sent the gospel. The gospel came to you not only in word. He's like, we're not just doing this mere declaration, some hollow idea that we come up with no heartless rhetoric there's a living encounter with real people but it's it's an encounter with god and he says this it came to you not only in word but also in power god's power with power what does that mean the bible says that the, the gospel the good news gospel means good news the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's where we get our word dynamite. Dunamis is the Greek word for power. It's where we get our word dynamite. This is words of dynamite that destroy idols that are holding you hostage and turns your heart to serve the living and true God. So it comes with power because it's God's power. Only omnipotence can rescue you from Satan's stronghold. You're held captive by him, held hostage by him to do his will. You can't wriggle yourself free. You can't be like Houdini and, you know, get yourself out of the chains of sin. You can't wriggle yourself free from the, the grasp of, of, of the devil. You were held captive to do his will, and God's all-powerful, almighty hand frees you. 
And you can do as many feats of strength as you'd like and flex as much as you want and do all the push-ups in the world and you can never make this come about. It's in power. The power of God brings it about. And then he says, and in the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is the one who enlightens your mind with the truth, opens your mind to believe the truth that you didn't believe before and breaks your hard conscience with conviction of your sin where you're like, I'm a sinner, I'm lost. You might have walked in here today and you're like, no, I'm not. And then you're like, whoa, whoa, hold on. You're getting a little personal here. Is God doing this? The Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin, tenderizes your heart, and makes the gospel effective in your life. Paul even said it this way. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, my preaching was not with wise, persuasive words, but in demonstration of the Spirit's power. He just let the Word do the work so that your faith would not rest on man's wisdom, but on God, on God's power. That's where your faith needs to rest. I don't have any wisdom for your faith to rest on. No one in this room has any wisdom for your faith to rest on. Your faith needs to rest on the power of God. And then he says this. He says, not just power in the Holy Spirit, but with full conviction. The word there is for assurance. Like you know for sure. Confidence. Deep confidence. Like God popped the balloon of my pride. He burst that. And God's word will not return empty. It will achieve its purpose. And, and what Paul is basically saying to this crew is, you know, we are confident that you are the real deal. You really are Christians. You really are of the elect. You are chosen of God. You are objects of God's sovereign grace. You were chosen. You were called. Your election was based on God's eternal decree. You were chosen Chosen on the basis of nothing but grace. It was un that's why we call it unconditional election. There weren't any conditions you had to meet. God just chose you. Now, every Christian I know, when they read that in the Bible, they're like, why would God choose me? I'm not worthy. Exactly. Now your heart is humble and tender. John in his gospel say to all who receive Christ, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. If you're regenerated, if you're born again, it's because God did it. When Jesus said this in John 3, you must be born again, he wasn't saying, now make it happen. <laughs> I told you what you needed to do, now make it happen. No, Jesus is like, you must be born again. And guess what? I do that. I make it happen. Ephesians 2, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God makes us alive. That's why Philippians 1, 6 says, he who began a good work in you. That's why Jesus is called the author and perfecter of our faith. This is why James 1 says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. This is why Peter says, God caused us to be born again to a living hope. 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. With no help from us. We, somehow we, we get this weird idea in our heads that we need to help God. Pelagius thought that too. I got to bring up Pelagius, a monk in the 5th century England. The guy's ideas has, has infected so many people even to this day. Pelagius was this monk in 5th century England, a contemporary of the greatest theologian of the first thousand years of church history, Augustine. Aurelius Augustine, Bishop of Hippo in North Africa. Augustine wrote a deep theology. You might have heard of his, the city of God. You might have heard of his confessions. But he prayed a famous prayer that literally sent Pelagius into orbit. The guy could not handle this prayer. Here was the prayer of Augustine. O oh God, command what you will and grant what you command. Pelagius loses his mind over it. His pride was too, too deep. He goes into orbit on it. He protests all the way to Rome and says, don't let him pray this prayer. He's all worked up about this little prayer. And he says, no, nah, I agree. I'll give you this. God can command anything he wants from his creatures. He's God. But he says, Pelagius says, I disagree that God gives what he commands. Pelagius said, no, no, no. Man must have, this is a quote from Pelagius, man must have the power within himself, the moral ability to do it, or God would never require it. He said, responsibility implies ability. False reasoning. Augustine says, time out. And they have a debate back and forth, back and forth. Augustine says, look, in creation, God commanded nothing from Adam or Eve that they could not do before the fall. They had perfect relationship with God. But once sin entered into the world, mankind became fallen in sin against God. So God punished creation with the judgment of original sin. So everyone after Adam and Eve is born into this world already dead in sin. And those young kids that were up here, beautiful kids. But born spiritually dead in sin, why would we be preaching the gospel to them if they were born in innocence with a clean slate? Original sin is the result of the first sin. It's, it's an inherent corruption. I mean, you're beautiful, but you're corrupted. We are not born in a state of innocence, but in a sinful, fallen condition. And the will, as a result of original sin, has the power to choose. But it is in bondage to evil desires and our, our evil inclinations. And we're not going to choose Christ on our own. Augustine called it an inability to not sin. That in the fall, man lost his moral ability to please God, and then becomes held captive by his evil desire. And Pelagius answers this way. Well, there is no original sin. Oh, Adam's sin, that only affected Adam. It didn't go past Adam. There was no transfer of guilt. There was no transfer of, of fallenness to anyone but himself. And then Pelagius says, in obedience to God, moral perfection is possible without help from God. If you want to get pushed by grace, you know, have at it, but you don't need it. 
Augustine comes back and says, no, we are infected by sin by nature to the core of our being, and no human has the moral power to cooperate with God. So, in the 5th century, Pelagius was condemned as a heretic. Rightly condemned as a heretic. He had crazy ideas, but they've infiltrated the church and they still are present today. In the 5th century, they, he was condemned as a heretic. And at the councils of Orange and Carthage and Florence, he's condemned. Even at the Council of Trent in the 16th century, he was condemned. But his ideas persist. Throughout church history, the church has condemned Pelagianism, which denies the fallenness of our nature and original sin. You come to faith in Christ because God gave you the gift of faith and the gift of repentance. Those are gifts. And your choice to believe, you, you truly choose to believe in Christ because God changes your heart toward him. And it is due to God determining to save you and set his love on you before the world began. This is what Christians rejoice in. Once God regenerates you, you willingly choose to believe. And, and Paul was seeing this fruit, this new birth resulting in new life. He, he knew the Thessalonians were loved by God from eternity. I know that you are chosen by God. I know he has chosen you because you've been changed by the gospel. So certain of their election, he calls them brethren. He knew God had predestined them for salvation because of the effect the gospel had on them. I'm hoping that you have experienced the new birth. I'm hoping that today you are regenerate. That means God took the, the one that was spiritually dead and made that one alive and that you believed the gospel and were saved. And now, what happens next? It's the second evidence of election. Not only you experience the new birth in regeneration, but then you exhibit a changed life in sanctification as God works in you to make you more like Christ. And I, and I see no less than 10 indicators embedded in these verses as we, as we continue on through here. No less than 10 indicators of a changed life. Like, how do you really know? Here's some indicators. Pick it up at verse 5. Again, the first is this. Following godly examples. Like, you want to follow godly examples. You go, I don't, I'm going to follow all the bad examples. No, you follow godly examples. What, what, they, what Paul says is in verse 5, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. We had your best interests in mind. We were living according to the will of God. The power was effective. Our actions spoke loudly. We backed up the message with lives of love and purity. And what does he say? You became, verse 6, you became imitators of us and the Lord. So following godly examples is an indicator of a changed life. Paul said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul said, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Like, follow good examples. Mimic someone's good behavior. Like when you're mimicking someone, sometimes you're just mocking them, right? This is like good mimicking. Like, See something godly and good 
and pattern your life after. Who in this body of believers are you imitating their faith? Who do you know in this church? Or if you're on the live stream, the church you're a part of, who are you imitating their faith? Who do you know? You know them. And you've seen their life. Who are you imitating? So following godly example, that's an indicator. Secondly, still in verse 6, receiving the word. When you receive the word of God, gladly. He says you receive the word in much affliction. With the joy of the Holy Spirit. And look, there's nothing like Christian life where you can have joy and suffering at the same time. Do you see what he says? You receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing about, oh, I like this certain preacher or style better than that. Um, Now, if you're going to pick and choose, if a church is preaching lies or twisting truth, don't listen to that. But our ingrained consumer mindset on the church is pretty telling. Here there's nothing about I'm Paul or I'm of Apollos. It's about suffering for Christ with the joy of the Holy Spirit by the word of God. They received the word of God. You received the word in much affliction. They were too busy with their suffering to worry about all the details that we worry about in our first world problems. Joy and persecution go together in the Bible. Matthew 5, Jesus says, blessed are you when people insult you. We hate that. Blessed are you when people persecute you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Throw a party for that. In 1 Peter, it says, Rejoice that you share in Christ's sufferings so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed because it's an indicator of being alive spiritually and growing in Christ. It's like when you receive a gift you know you don't deserve. You, you kind of just hold it a little tighter and you cherish it a lot. It's... To, to be glad to suffer for Christ is a proof of life. You follow godly examples. You receive the word. Third, you become a godly example. Look at verse 7. So that you became an example to all the believers. Now, they're the type. They're the model. They're something to emulate. They're, they're getting mimicked in the best possible way. The imitators become imitated. It was awesome. They became a model for others to follow. The Thessalonians were modeling, and you notice what it says, to all the believers, how to stand firm through trials and persecutions and suffering and not give up. See, if you're a Christian and you've suffered, you know, and you've learned, you've you've experienced this, that it is through suffering that God strengthens your faith and proves it genuine. It's like when a tree is blown by a strong wind. It causes the the roots to sink deeper. If you're a Christian, you know that persecution and suffering cause you to be more firmly rooted in Christ. Did you realize that your actions and attitudes as a believer are being watched and observed and followed? Becoming godly examples. These are indicators of a changed life. Fourth, giving the word. Giving the word. Verse 8, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, and then he goes on to say something else, but stop for a moment. The word of the Lord, the Bible, the inerrant, inspired, infallible, conscience-finding, authoritative, perfect, eternal word of God has sounded forth from you. That's like trumpets blaring, played in tune, of course. Now, there are people 
who will say wrongly, well, if you believe in the doctrine of election without, you know, restating it so that we feel good about it rather than be biblically accurate about it, some people will say election hinders missions and evangelism. They had a whole debate in the 1800s about it. Well, if the elect are going to be saved, why should anybody go out and preach the gospel? They're going to be saved whether people take the gospel to them or not. False. That is a false idea. It overlooks the fact that hearing and believing the gospel is what God uses to save those he has chosen to save. Paul believed and taught the doctrine of election because the Holy Spirit told him to. He had him write it down. It's a biblical doctrine. But Paul was also peerless in his fervor for evangelism and missions. The guy was out there getting beat up to get people the gospel. In fact, at one point he said, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Paul said, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Like, I have to preach the gospel. I, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may obtain salvation in Christ Jesus. That those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world, and I don't know who they are, so I'm going to get the word out to everyone. In Romans 9, he says that God told Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The Holy Spirit had Paul write Romans 9, the most election-oriented chapter in the Bible, followed by Romans chapter 10, the most evangelism-oriented chapter in the Bible. Because writing about election and, and relishing that truth moved him to be compelled to evangelize. Knowing God chose him motivated him to tell everyone what God did in the gospel. The elect will not be saved without hearing and believing of the gospel. What, what a privilege that through evangelism, you and I who believe could participate in God's plan of drawing people to himself, those whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world. The doctrine of election frees you to preach the gospel, share the gospel with no fear of failure, with no pressure on you. Preach the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit and trust God with the results. These are the indicators of someone who believes who's been saved by grace through faith in Christ. You follow godly examples. You, you receive the word of God. You, you become a godly example. You give the word out. But five, you share your testimony. Different than giving out the word. You give out the word, but then you, you, you share how you got saved. When we had baptism recently, I said this. I said, you should try on your, 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 your testimony for size because you're going to be wearing it like your whole life. Like, how did Jesus save you? What happened in your life? What was the, give us the story. 
And it's interesting, verse 8 says this, your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Your faith in God. They've heard about the Thessalonians. Now, what's interesting is before that you, you give your testimony, you have to be able to say, I'm really a Christian. You can't just make something up. <laughs> and Bible calls for self-examination for those who profess faith in Christ. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Like, test yourself. And here's the best test. Do you love Jesus? And do you obey his word? Do you obey Christ's commands? I mean, literally, like, a lot of times in John chapters 14, 15, and 16, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what I say. And the Thessalonians loved Jesus and did what he said, and they were so excited about Christ, they told everyone, and here's the deal, share the best news. Like, this is good gossip. You got the greatest gift. So give a gospel testimony. Let me ask you a question. If you're a believer, who knows you're a Christian? And who doesn't? And why might that be? Indicators. Following godly examples. Receiving the word. Becoming godly examples. Giving the word. Sharing your testimony. Number six. This is a key one. Loving the church. Loving the church. Look at verse 9. For they themselves report, there's the report card now, concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. Reception, we go to receptions all the time. Go to wedding receptions, right? You go to a wedding reception, you're invited, and people don't just say, hey, get, get away from that food. They're like, have as much as you'd like. We love that you're here. You're our welcome guest. You, you're our treasured guest. We, we welcome you. This idea of a reception among the believers is they loved the church and they welcomed the church with open arms, freely and generously, with hospitality, not rejecting their brothers and sisters in Christ, but receiving them. This is the job of every Christian. This is, if you're a Christian, this is your job. If you're a part of Grace Church of Orange, you are to welcome your brothers and sisters in Christ, even when we gather. Like, welcome, family. I mean, who's been to a church before where you're like, I don't think they like me very much. I think I'm invisible. <laughs> right? We've all felt that way before. But what about when you show up and people treat you like a long-lost cousin they didn't know they had? Isn't that awesome? Welcome, family. I mean, you bless people by your presence. The church needs you present. Thank you for being here. We bless one another. You are needed. You're, if you're staying away from the church, you're needed and you're loved by the church. You, and by the way, the last 18 months, we keep talking about the last 18 months. Soon it'll be the last two years. Whatever it is, you do the math. It has exposed a lot of heart issues among Christians. And misunderstandings of life in Christ's church, like what the nature of the church is. And people find a lot of things to get offended by. And it usually just magnifies the pre-existing condition of their hearts. We need to understand, what does it mean to be a part of a local church? Warts and all, yours and mine and everyone else's. What does it mean to love Jesus and one another? What does it mean to repent of our sins? What does it mean to forgive each other? What does it mean to live by truth, not lies? That's the reception that Christians should have from one another because 
You'll love the church that God put you into. Indicators. Number seven is you turn from idols. You turn from idols. Look at verse nine, still in verse nine, how you turn to God from idols. You turned to God from idols. God's people, through the, through the, the, the ages, consistently defiled themselves with the idols of Egypt in the Old Testament. And, and their hearts continually went after idols. The Thessalonians were living in a place much like Athens that was a city full of idols. They could see Mount Olympus 50 miles away where the Greek gods supposedly dwelt. In Acts 17, the Thessalonian authorities charged Paul and Jason with, quote, acting against the decrees of Caesar. Why was that such a big crime? Because they worshiped Caesar as a god. And the citizens took an oath of loyalty to Caesar. Full-on idol worship. Here's what they said. I swear I will support Caesar Augustus, his children and descendants throughout my life in word, deed, and thought. I will spare neither body nor soul nor life nor children. Whenever I see or hear of anything being said, planned, or done against them, I will report it. Whomsoever they regard as enemies, I will attack and pursue with arms and sword by land and sea. They had a temple to Caesar that was built in Thessalonica during the reign of Augustus. They regarded Augustus as a god. They put his, his face on all the coins instead of Zeus because they were worshiping him. So in the New Testament times, it was Caesar worship. It was Epicurean sensuality. It was legalism. It was licentiousness. Uh, you had a pantheon of menacing deities. You were trying not to get upset at you. Christians were being targeted. They were being martyred by Rome because they pointed out the futility and the falsity of, of paganism with its mute, blind, deaf idols of wood and stone and metal. As William Blake said, we become what we behold. The depraved desires that drive idolatry are the same that Adam and Eve had. They wanted to promote themselves to godhood where they could say, I have total freedom, autonomous control, unlimited desire, anything I want to do. Ever since the garden, this has been going on. Every generation, idols everywhere, everywhere. Wood and stone and precious metals, idols of creation and the imagination, any idol we can get our hands or our hearts on. Paper and digital books, streamed music and movies, phones, laptops, TVs, houses, cars, boats, degrees, titles, power, food, drink, and drugs, trophies, treasure, trash, people, pets, playthings, idols of position promising you pleasure and power and prestige and pictures that promise you pleasure. And our hearts just get wrapped up in decadent, deplorable, degrading idol worship because our hearts are idol factories. Whatever it is that clouds or confuse the reality of God's sovereign goodness in your life and reaching eternal souls for Christ is idolatrous for you. But praise God, the gift of repentance stops us in our tracks. True repentance is a deliberate turning from sin to God. And, and you're sorry for your sin. There's a shift that's taking place in your heart. There's fruits of repentance because you know that you easily go towards addictions and superstitions and they're hard to break. But God grants repentance and God renews. Turning from idols, that's an indicator of living a, a, a new life. Number eight, serving the Lord. Verse nine, it says, to serve the living and true God. To serve there, it means to be a slave who obeys and worships. 
the living and true God. Not dumb idols, but the creating, speaking, saving, loving God, who Psalm 115 says does whatever pleases him. God does whatever pleases him. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? 2 Corinthians 6, for we are the temple of the living God. The psalmist said, my soul thirsts for God, the living God. Jeremiah said, the Lord is the true God, the living God, the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes. Even Darius made a decree that people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. He is the living God. Paul said, we toil and strive because we hope, we have set our hope on the living God. You serve the living God any way you can. Number nine, waiting for Christ. There's an indicator of new life. Look at verse 10. To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. And that's not doing nothing. That's like Paul in Athens, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Redeeming the time. Using it for gospel purposes. Wait here is a sustained expectation of good. You don't know when Christ is returning. But the Thessalonians were a good model for us. They were busy ready. They were busy ready. It's like when you have guests coming. And you're like, got to get the house ready. Got to get all the food ready. Or maybe you have someone famous coming, and you're like, I want to get all my friends together so they can meet this famous person when they come. This is like a Christian wanting to get the gospel out to everyone so that they would meet Christ when he returns and be blessed instead of cursed. Because the last indicator, number 10, is living by faith. Look at the end of verse 10. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Nobody wants to talk about wrath. That's always the unpopular message, right? Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Wrath is God's just and eternal fixed anger against sin. There is an impending day when all the nations will be gathered before Jesus. He'll separate the sheep from the goats. The, the sheep will be blessed by the Father. Inheritance uh, received. The cursed will have the eternal fire prepared for them. And this will be a day when everything will be destroyed. And what... Peter says is we must live godly, holy lives in light of that. Not that you would be living in dread of some certain expectation of judgment as a believer. Because a believer knows they will not shrink in shame at the appearing of Christ. You're saved from the wrath to come, therefore you're free to urgently love the beloved. So that's it. Evidence of election. You experience a new birth and regeneration. You exhibit new life in sanctification. There's indicators, following godly examples, receiving the word, becoming godly examples, giving the word out, sharing your testimony, loving the church, turning from idols, serving the Lord, waiting for Christ, living by faith. Boil it all down, it's God changes the chosen. God changes those he chooses. The Holy Spirit had Paul write this blanket blessing to the church. And you could ask the question, were they all on board? Only God knows. But you get to verse 14 of chapter 5, and it says, admonish the unruly. Anything can be faked and fool some people, but counterfeits never fool God. God knows those who are his. How do you know you're one of the elect? How do you know you've been chosen by God? You have new birth, and you've experienced life change. There's signs of life. I hope every once in a while, I hope often, you get this kind of encouragement from fellow believers where they say, you know what? You're real. I can actually tell you're a real believer. There's evidence, there's fruit, there's proof. 
The best thing you can hear if you're not a believer today is, I'm concerned for the state of your soul. I'm concerned for the state of your soul. We can't see the heart, but we can see what we can see. By the way, today is not a defense of the doctrine of election. It's a celebration of it. It's clear in God's word. This is about the effects of election. How change happens because God chose his church. And it all started with prayer. Do you remember at the very beginning, they, they just said, we thank God for you? Dietrich Bonhoeffer suffered greatly at the hands of the Nazis and wrote a book called Life Together, a classic exploration of classic Christian community. And here's what he said. A Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another, or it collapses. I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he causes me. His face is transformed in my mind into the countenance of a brother for whom Christ died, the face of a forgiven sinner. The church praying for one another, evidence of election. Lord God, we thank you and praise you that you love us in the beloved love. And even Paul saying, ah, we realize you're real. There, there's proof of God's purchase of you. There's, there's change in your chosen life and there's evidence of election. We, we praise you, Lord. We pray that that would be true of us. We thank you, Lord, that you, ch you change those you choose. And that we would choose to love you and your church and all people. And that we would simply praise you as we see those chosen of you changed by the gospel as you do your work by your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.